Hi everybody, Liam here. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to remind you that East Bay Yesterday, it's not the only podcast about Oakland history. There are so many incredible stories about this place, and there's no way I could cover them all. So that's why I'm excited to tell you about a show called Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story. It's a six-episode series about the evolution of healthcare over the past few decades. And specifically, it deals with sickle cell anemia, an illness that primarily affects African Americans. This show, it covers everything from the history of the Black Panthers setting up community clinics to the latest breakthroughs in gene therapy. But here's the thing, even if you don't have sickle cell or know anybody who does, it's still such a fascinating lens to examine healthcare and struggles to provide equitable treatment to often overlooked communities. Best of all, revolutionary care includes the voices of people who are most affected by this, both the patients and their families and the doctors working to treat it. So it's such a powerful story. And I think if you like my podcast, you'll really dig this show too. Revolutionary Care, an Oakland story, was created by UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals and you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. I'll also drop a link in the show notes. Big thank you to UCSF Benioff Children's Hospitals for supporting this episode of East Bay Yesterday. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Usually on this show, if I'm talking about something that happened, say, a hundred years ago, that feels pretty old, right? hundred years? But in Andrew Alden's world, a hundred years, a century, less than the blink of an eye. That's because Andrew's focus is Bay Area geology, where the scope is billions of years. And I know that thinking of time spans that long can be pretty hard to wrap your head around, but Andrew does an incredible job of explaining things at a, at a human scale in his new book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shaped a City. Like, for example, now, whenever I feel a little tremor, I think about how tectonic plates below us are shifting at roughly the same speed that fingernails grow. Crazy, right? And another thing, this book reminds us that even though we're all living in fear of the big one and the destruction it'll cause someday, the same forces that cause earthquakes are also responsible for creating one of the features that make this place so special, the Oakland Hills. And that process of how the hills were formed over millions and billions of years, the way that Andrew tells it, it's almost like an adventure story. But today's episode will be about so much more than just earthquakes and the hills. Like, did you know that downtown Oakland is built on ancient sand dunes? Or why we have to keep repaving the same potholes over and over again? Or how Lake Merritt was formed? We'll be getting into all those questions and a lot more over the next hour. 
The Devil's Punch Bowl, Fool's Gold Mines, Oakland's Biggest Landslide. Seriously, we're going to cover it all, and this show will rock your world. One last thing. I wanted to interview Andrew outside so we could see the things he was talking about. So we recorded the first part of this conversation at Lake Merritt and the second part up near Leona Canyon. And as a result, you can hear some background noise, you know, birds, a few uh, power tools, the occasional helicopter. I hope that doesn't bother you too much. Uh, I think it helps illustrate the concept that Oakland is a, it's a living place full of sounds. You know, millions of years ago, it was dinosaurs making dinosaur noises. Today, it's car horns and uh, things like that. <laughs> anyway, this is East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue, and here's my interview with Deep Oakland author, Andrew Alden. Andrew, thank you so much for meeting up with me today and for writing this incredible book, Deep Oakland, How Geology Shapes a City. I think you've written that Oakland has some of the greatest diversity of rocks in the in the country, right? In terms of like the city with the most different kinds of rocks. Can you explain to me like what that means and why that's the case? As far as I can tell, it's true. Nobody's really tried to uh, to make a list. But the bedrock of Oakland has been assembled uh, over millions of years from three or four different places. And each place had a different set of rocks. And they're all here uniquely in the East Bay and the Bay Area. And so I went one day and started looking at my pictures, you know, because I mostly collect pictures. I don't collect rocks anymore because there are too many of them. Looking at my pictures and thinking, okay, well, there's sandstone, there's shale, there's gabbro, my God, there's gabbro in Oakland. And I kept counting, and I got up to like 25, 27 different nameable rock types. And so I went, okay, San Francisco's got nothing like this. I looked at Los Angeles, they had maybe a dozen. And Chicago, they have like two. Uh, uh, New York is a close competitor, but not that close. Oakland just was far and away the most lithodiverse city that I could that I could find. All right. So now that we've established that Oakland is a very interesting place uh, geologically speaking, I want to ask a practical question uh, that I think ties, you know, your interest of geology with something that's on a lot of people's minds in Oakland right now, which is. Is there a geological explanation for why we have so many potholes here? Why does the why do the roads keep crumbling? Is is there is does it have something to do with the soil underneath, or what's the deal with that? It's uh, something that that geologists are quite familiar with, which is the interactions of fluids and pressure and porous media, namely the asphalt on a road, the sand in a sandstone. It's a familiar problem. If you compress water, it transmits pressure instantaneously and perfectly into the surrounding sediment, and, and it just breaks it up. And that's what's happening to our roads. It's simply the water and the porosity. So there's really nothing we can do except just kind of keep, keep paving and repaving and repaving and repaving. It's, those potholes are just going to keep popping up. Asphalt only lasts so long. You know, we've had a lot of different types of roads in Oakland's history. 
Uh, it began with sand, you know, there's nothing here but sand downtown. And they replaced that with macadam, which is a mixture of crushed stone in various sizes topped with rock dust. And then we moved on to asphalt, and then we've moved on to concrete. Concrete is the most durable road, but we're never going to do that for the whole city. And there are the uh, the famous geese of Oakland that, that the listeners can hear in the background right now. See, we really are on location. Um, so I think probably the main reason why people who live in the Bay Area and California have uh, somewhat of a geological understanding of the place we live is because of earthquakes. So earthquakes are covered fairly frequently, you know, fairly heavily in the media, but I think there's probably still a lot of misunderstandings about this phenomenon. Are there any misconceptions that you feel like people have or misconceptions that you see out there that would be worth correcting about earthquakes or, you know, the faults that run through the East Bay in particular? Probably the hardest myth about earthquakes for, for people to let go of is the idea that an earthquake happens that prevents future earthquakes. And that's simply not true. Earthquake faults are, they're not just one crack in the ground, they're a whole set of cracks in the ground. And the one that ruptures in a small earthquake is not the same as the one that ruptures in a big one. They're just not physically related, although they're very close. They do influence each other. And seismologists have spent decades on this. For me, the thing about earthquakes and faults in general is, as a geologist, you appreciate them because they change landscapes. They make landscapes. And Oakland is Oakland because of the Hayward Fault. And, and so we have to give it respect. People who've lived in Oakland are aware of earthquakes, but the people who founded California did not know about earthquakes. They knew about gold. They cared about gold. And then after that, they cared about coal, and they cared about uh, crushed rock, the things you need to make cities out of. The people in the gold rush didn't really know about earthquakes. They heard stories about them because there were plenty around if you talk to old timers, but they didn't feel one until uh, 1857, when a huge earthquake in Southern California was felt all across the state. And then the next decade saw several more major earthquakes, including one that Mark Twain went through in 1865. And then in 1868 was the big Hayward Fault earthquake. So, yeah, we learned early on about earthquake country, but the, the people who came in and made California with the gold rush, they didn't know about earthquakes. They had to get used to them. You write about how there are houses that are literally built directly on top of the Hayward Fault. So if there was a quake along the Hayward Fault, you know, well, just I should clarify real quick. I think, you know, probably the most famous fault in, in California is the San Andreas Fault, but the one that runs right through the, the East Bay Hills is the Hayward Fault. And so if there was a, a major quake along that fault, which apparently, you know, I've, I've read in some reports that were, were due for, allegedly, um, what parts of Oakland would be most affected? How, how, do you, how would you see that earthquake playing out in real life along this ridge of hills that we're looking at right now on the other side of Lake Merritt? Well, 
who is on the fault? Uh, going from north to south, we've got the Claremont Resort is right on the fault. We've got East Bay Mud's water line, the, the main water line connecting the uh, McKelvey River with with the uh, with the Bay Area. We've got the whole Montclair Business District is right on the fault. We've got the LDS Temple, the Mormon Temple up in the hills. That's right on the fault. We've got um, the Oakland Zoo. And we've got the 580 freeway crossing it in a couple of places. So that's just a start. They're, they will... You don't have to speculate too much in terms of, um, you know, just like painting a picture of total doom and apocalypse, because I think even just laying out those locations where they are, I think, you know, is kind of sending a chill through my spine right now. Yeah, the, the earthquake they're, they're thinking of, this is the scenario earthquake that scientists and disaster researchers and emergency managers are working on together. This earthquake will rupture the ground by about two meters. And so you imagine that, a big crack in the ground with a two meter offset running through a bunch of buildings like the Lucky Store in Montclair and the, and the resort and the temple. And all the electrical lines and water lines that will be cut. I, I don't like to think about it, and I try not to. Okay, well, just a, just a couple more quick earthquake-related questions, and we'll move on to some, some happier topics. Another earthquake sort of myth that I've heard that I'm curious if you can confirm or dispel, do earthquakes make noise? I've heard stories about how earthquakes sound like thunder. Is that accurate? Earthquakes are noise. They're the, they're the sound of the Earth's crust breaking. And if you can imagine something as big as that, doing something as big as that, it releases sound. So yeah, earthquakes do make noise. They make a lot of noise. They described um, people who witnessed large earthquakes say, say it's like honored locomotives. Wow, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, okay, I learned a lot of very interesting vocabulary from your book. I think my favorite new term is creep meter. Can you explain to the folks what a creep meter is and where there is a creep meter in Oakland? Uh, creep is the process that certain earthquake faults do. They not only produce earthquakes, but they also move very, very slowly between earthquakes along the surface. And the Hayward Fault, which runs through Oakland, Oakland has the largest share of the Hayward Fault. Uh, I, Hayward Fault is famous for being a creeping fault. From end to end, from uh, Pinole Point down to Alum Rock in San Jose, it, they have measured creep on this fault several millimeters a year. It varies from place to place, but over 10 years or so, that adds up to an inch or two, and that can do things to foundations, it can do things to roadways and buildings, and all along the fault, you can see that. Uh, Hayward is famous for it in geological circles. 
a creep meter is an instrument we have invented to measure creep. What you do is you dig a vault in the ground to, uh, you know, 10 or 20 feet deep to avoid surface effects, seasonal effects like rainfall and summer drought and so on. You line it with concrete, you arrange electricity, and you put these two piers in the ground, one on either side of the fault, and you connect them with a big steel wire. Actually, it's not steel, it's an alloy called INVAR, which is stable with temperature changes and so on. And then you tighten it up, and then you just wait and measure how much it stretches. That's what a creep meter is. And there, there's one in Lake Temescal Regional Park, underneath the underneath the pathway there. Um, they they come and visit it, and it measures several millimeters per year of creep. Wow! All right, moving right from one uh, natural disaster to the next. Uh, you write in the chapter about Sibley Park uh, up at the peak of the Oakland Hills there, that uh, there used to be a volcano in that part of the East Bay. Is that something we ever need to worry about? Is that volcano gone for good? Uh, and how did that volcano um, affect the formation of Oakland? The, uh, the volcano around top and Sibley is extinct. It finished erupting nine million years ago. Right. So we they, dodged a bullet with that one. It, it's <laughs> not, it is an ex-volcano. The only volcanic hazard we have is not insignificant, but it's distant. We've got a volcano up by Clear Lake. We've got volcanoes over on the other side of the Sierra. And in the geological past, they have erupted vigorously enough to send blankets of ash as far as the Bay Area. So in the long term, Yes, we do have volcanic hazard in Oakland, but only a tiny little bit. The volcano at Sibley formed as part of the rearrangement of the Earth's crust that happened as the San Andreas Fault was forming, which was between, in the last 25 million years, the Hayward Fault system has been, and still is, rearranging California. And so as part of that, we had a volcano somewhere near the Bay Area. It's, it's been moved since then. It's been moved to Oakland. And so that's, that's part of that long story. That volcanic center has changed its position since then. And right now it is uh, active up at Clear Lake, where if you go up there, there's, uh, you can see boiling mud pots and hot springs and so on. All right. Before we before we get any deeper, um, if you'll pardon the pun, into Oakland geology, uh, let's take a step back and just kind of give people like a little primer on tectonic plates and uh, basically how the the earth is constantly being formed and reformed and how things move around. We, as kids in school, we learn about the crust and the mantle and the core and some of these basic concepts. But without, you know, getting into super scientific detail, can you just give us like a quick little simple overview of like what tectonic plates are and how they have formed California and, and the Bay Area? 
the earth is basically a hot body of rock that's trying to cool off and the outside of the earth is solid because it's been cooling off for four and a half billion years uh, that's not a simple quiet process the part that's underneath wants to kind of stir and boil the way a pot on the stove does when you heat it at the same time when the top is cooling it wants just to kind of stir like the top of a cup of coffee does when you when you blow on it and so between those two sets of forces um, Earth has arrived at a system called plate tectonics, which has been in, in business for the last few billion years. Not all of Earth history, but uh, the part that counts. And the top of the Earth, the top 100 kilometers or so, it varies here and there, is solid and rigid. And the part that's underneath is kind of soft, even though it's in a solid state. So there's room to move. What's moving underneath makes the top part crack. And so the Earth's outer layer is segmented into about a dozen large shells of rock. We call them plates, but of course they're round because it's on a sphere. They're like, they're like a shattered eggshell. Or, as I put it in the book, it's like uh, a soccer ball that you could take the polygons and move them around like a, a Rubik's Cube. And that's plate tectonics, and, and where the faults fit in is on the edges of the plates. And our system in Central California in the Coast Range is one of, those one of those places where the plates are moving past each other and not toward or away from each other. And so they are what's called, what geologists call transcurrent faults, or in our case, uh, the Hayward Fault, the San Andreas Fault, they're all dextral, right lateral faults, because when you look across them, it's the other side moving to the right. So they're grinding against each other. They are grinding against each other, yeah. And, the, and fault zones are not just a pure mathematical crack, although of course we have to treat them that way as, uh, as researchers do. In reality, they're maybe hundreds of feet wide, maybe, maybe even wider, and they consist of a whole family of cracks and soft zones of crushed rock and so on. Well, um, I really appreciate that kind of, you know, simplified, boiled-down explanation. Cause I, as anyone who's read geology books knows, this can, stuff can get very complicated very fast. So I always appreciate it when you kind of put it in human terms, like this plate is growing about as fast as a human fingernail or something like that. It really um, helps sort of visualize these enormous processes that unfold over, you know, billions of years, which is hard to even comprehend. Um, so I think that, that your book does an incredible job of sort of simplifying a lot of these concepts and, and putting it in a way that's digestible and understandable. And I think will really change the way that people look around and see, see how the world around them might have been formed. So speaking of which, here we are sitting on the shores of Lake Merritt, and you've got a whole chapter in your book about the history of this specific location and what it looked like billions of years ago, millions of years ago, thousands of years ago. So, you know, as we're sitting here on this beautiful morning, tell me what you see looking around you right now in terms of through a geologist's eyes. What can you tell me about how this landscape was formed? 
Well, what I see uh, in Lakeside Park is a beautiful flat platform. It's like the platonic ideal of a park. It's a gently rolling plateau. And uh, of course, I see the lake itself. And the two are related because the platform in Lakeside Park was formed at a time when the sea was higher than today, when the sea was about 20, 25 feet higher than today. And this was during the ice ages at a warm spill. It was so warm that the sea, the ice had melted and the sea was even higher than today. And at that point, the, uh, all the mud from the Oakland Hills washed in and filled it all up right up to the waterline. And then when the sea level came back down as the ice ages kicked in again, the platform was left behind. And that's where that came from. So that's one story that's from 125,000 years ago. And then looking across the lake, we have these higher hills. They're a couple hundred feet high at their highest. And they are, um, they're, they're not flat at all. They're di what geologists say, they're dissected. Streams have cut into them and carved them. And they are much older. And the only reason we don't see those streams still is because most of them have been put in tunnels underneath the ground, right? They've been uh, culverted, as the, as the technical term would put it? Yeah, most of them have. They're um, very few surface streams visible in, uh, in Oakland these days. Part of what we've done to this landscape. Uh, also in front of the hills, we see a lower ridge. I see it, it's, it's not easy to see, but when you study the hills and when you go up in them and you learn where everything is, it's obvious. And that's the ridge of bedrock that has Piedmont on it. And that lies in front of the high hills. What, what a lot of people would commonly refer to as kind of like the foothills, basically? Or is that what we're, sort of you're, we're referring to here? They do. They are, they are foothills, but they're not related to the higher hills. They're only in the same place. Between those two sets of hills is the Hayward Fault. The Hayward Fault has carried that Piedmont block, the Piedmont foothills. It carried it here. Over the, you know, over the last million years. So that's one of the longer stories of Lake Merritt. Because when it did that, that uh, ridge of bedrock has its own stream network. And those streams all run together at Lake Merritt. Those streams together are what have carved Lake Merritt. So the bedrock ridge in front of the main high hills is a special feature of Oakland that has made sure that Lake Merritt is here. And it kind of integrates the whole landscape in one place. And that's, that's one thing I love about Lake Merritt and why it deserved a leading place in the book. Because it's such a great place to talk about everything about Oakland. Ah, I'm, I just I love that explanation um, because the story is so much more complicated than I expected. You know, before I knew anything about geology, when I got here, I looked at the foothills and then the higher hills behind them, and I thought, oh, it was probably like, uh, 
if for for you guys listening at home like imagine if you you've got a bed that you just made and the bedspread is flat and then you take you know your hand and put it down there and sort of scrunch up the bed sheets and how you know you get kind of get ridges uh, i thought maybe that's how the hills was formed but you're saying you know these are totally different sets of rocks they kind of slid together during different eras and this isn't just kind of one this wasn't just one flat plane that kind of got smushed up it's it's a much more complex story than that yeah the bay area is, is very complex i've really only touched on it but um you, you talk about mountains being raised by folding and thrusting and that is the way that most mountain ranges form that's the way the rocky mountains formed through um the accidents of plate tectonics but in the bay area in particular that kind of folding and thrusting is also overwhelmed by the horizontal movements of faults but the hayward fault and the calaveras fault and the concord fault and the san andreas fault and the san gregorio fault and among them they've kind of stretched everything sideways but at the same time there is a little bit of pressure across them and a bit of stretching across them and that bit of pressure across them is what has raised the high hills the high oakland hills so it, there is some of that folding and thrusting that you learned that that you learned in school that that's such a helpful explanation you know that explains why you know one of my favorite places to go hiking is kind of up by like the strawberry canyon area and there's parts of that hike that are these exposed layers of rock and you know anyone is probably familiar with this where you know you you're walking by an exposed rock face and you can kind of see the layers and you know that the lower layers are older than the higher layers but in the east bay hills it's not necessarily those layers aren't necessarily you know, horizontal, they're vertical in some places because after those layers were formed, uh, they were kicked on their side through some of these uh, yeah, tectonic processes that you're describing. Yeah, when, when, the, when the fault forced up the hills, and this is over several million years, it folded them, it turned them up, it, it pushed against them and shoved them up. And so when you go up there, everything is vertical, everything is sideways. And that's one of the wonderful things about the hills is that it exposes, it exposes rocks in three and four dimensions, not just three dimensions, allowing you to kind of move up and down in geologic time uh, as you drive along Skyline Boulevard, for instance. When you start up by Grizzly Peak along Skyline Boulevard, Grizzly Peak is made of basalt lava that erupted nine million years ago. And then you drive down, you cross over uh, Claremont Boulevard and Fish Ranch Road, and then you go into a layer of chert, which is several million years older. And then beyond that, you get into an older sandstone. And then you jump, I mean, all of this is like 15 million years old. And then you jump all of a sudden to 80 million years old. And that's all a bunch of sandstone from Mesozoic time, from the Cretaceous period, when California was a very different place. And then you jump again to a big belt of serpentine. And then Cal you jump California again. State Rock. You're right, right. <laughs> The, Calif uh, uh, 
to a, a mile or so of serpentine. And then you jump again to more sandstone from the Cretaceous. And then finally you jump to a bunch of even older volcanic rocks that are 10 times as old as Round Top. Wow, so you're just going like back in time and, as, and, as you and, drive south. And they're all turned, they're all turned upside on their edges. Wow. I mean, it's like an adventure story when you think about it like that. All right, coming back down from the hills for a couple minutes, let's uh, situate ourselves uh, mentally here in, in downtown Oakland. You've got a whole chapter about downtown, uh, the downtown sort of West Oakland area. And I was surprised to learn that what's beneath those neighborhoods and those buildings now is the remnants of sand dunes that used to cover the East Bay. Tell me about what formed those sand dunes? Uh, you know, if we go down far enough, are the sand dunes still there? What's the story of the, the long gone East Bay sand dunes? When the three squatters, Horace Carpentier, Edson Adams, and Andrew Moon, uh, rode across the bay and staked their claim on downtown Oakland, they could tell it was a special piece of land. It was a nice, level platform. It was elevated above the ocean. It was not a marsh. It, it had the makings of a good, of a city, you know. You could put up docks and wharves. You could lay out streets. You could dig uh, wells. And uh, so it's a special piece of land, and it's a special piece of land because of uh, the Oakland's youngest geological story that happened in the latest phase of the latest ice age, when it was at its maximum, when the sea was so low, when the ice was so great, it, the sea was as much lower as our tallest buildings downtown Oakland are tall. 400 feet lower, 130 meters lower. So at the beach, you have to picture the beach way out at the Farallons. And everything in between is freshly exposed mud and gravel and sediment from the Sierra that have washed down during the Ice Age. And all the sandstone that you see along Ocean Beach, that, you know, a huge sandy plain covered with howling Ice Age winds. And so, yeah, it blew sand all the way across San Francisco, which is half sand dunes to this day, and all the way across the bay, and all the way over to this side of the bay. And it built up uh, huge sand banks of this wonderful fine sand without a single pebble in it. And then the ice age faded, and the sea came back up, and it kind of covered up the sand and it, and it formed the bay, right? Yeah, and, and formed the bay as we know it. And so there it was. It, it had dunes on it. And um, the, the native tribes who lived here uh, managed an oak forest on it. It was, it was perfect space for coast live oaks. It was a beautiful grove. Uh, all of Oakland's downtown and West Oakland was a big grove of, of oaks, which were good for acorns, good for firewood, good for all sorts of stuff. You know, they're central to the indigenous way of life. And uh, Moon and Adams and 
carpenter looked at it and said, this is great, you know, we can, we can sell this for estates for all the gold millionaires in San Francisco who want to get away from that terrible city. And that was our marketing plan. And it was built on a lucky set of Ice Age sand dunes. The sand is about 60 feet deep. Like I say, there's not a pebble in it. It's got some clay. It's got enough clay to be excellent foundation material. So it's still really good stuff. 170 years later, it's good for building skyscrapers. In 1850, it was good for sinking wells. So you're, you're saying that the, the tall buildings in downtown Oakland are built on this foundation of uh, compressed sand and clay, not bedrock? There's, they're not, they're not um, anchored in something harder? Is that safe? Yeah, d- downtown, the bedrock is several hundred feet deep in downtown Oakland. You simply can't reach it. You have to drill down to it. It's too deep to even think about when it comes to engineering a major building. So engineers design it for this, for what we have. And it's perfectly adequate. It's not going to liquefy during an earthquake. And even though downtown Oakland is nothing but sand and sand and gravel below that, it's good sand, it's good ground. And the same is probably true for Alameda, which is also a sand dune. And I know that, uh, you know, you were talking a minute ago about all the uh, benefits that this particular kind of sandy soil uh, gave to the the growing city of Oakland. And I know another benefit was how fertile it was. Of course, back then there was a lot more farms, a lot more people growing food in in Oakland and the East Bay, Uh, not only downtown, but of course in Fruitvale as well. Of course, that's how the neighborhood originally got its name because of, you know, orchards and things like that that were that were growing there. So can you talk a little bit about how the geologic history of Oakland has made it such a fertile place in places like downtown and Fruitvale? And what did those processes look like? Oakland is a good spot to make soil in because it has good rocks in the hills, it has good rainfall to wash it down to the bay, and it has enough water to to kind of digest that sediment and support vegetation and the things that turn it into soil. And it was well managed for thousands of years by the Ohlone's who uh, kept everything nicely burned. They kept everything burned so that the ash could fertilize the soil. They weren't raising crops and exporting them overseas. They um, managed the landscape to be sustainable. And the soil just, uh, under those conditions, the soil just gets better and better. The soil underneath that oak grove downtown was classic virgin soil. It was packed with nitrates, it was packed with phosphorus and humic acids and and things that make good soil. And so when you plowed it up, it was like it was like the whole story of the American West. You plowed it up, you put water on it, it bore enormous crops. There's a story in your book about a guy claiming he grew an 18-pound carrot. That story was was commonly repeated in all the history books. Um, 
Yeah, he, he, had a, he had a plot at 4th and 5th Street near downtown, and he uh, grew carrots that weighed down the scales to the 18-pound mark, <laughs> they said. And if you imagine an 18-pound carrot, that's like... Yeah, that's, that's, like a, that's, a, that's the size of your leg. Yeah, it's like what, a baseball bat size carrot. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? It's a great story, but what are you going to do with that? It's not like they had the Half Moon Bay pumpkin contests back then. Although I guess you could get a blue ribbon at a county fair for it. Slice it up and serve it with some wings if you're asking me. <laughs> and a, a couple of pieces of celery, some blue cheese. That sounds like, sounds like, sounds like a feast right there. But, the, but, that, but that's what... Uh, virgin soil does and that's why Fruitvale was such an amazing place it was a major nursery district for the whole Bay Area you know agriculture depends on nurseries and so that's why Fruitvale first got its name one of the first major nurseries located there in the 1850s and Oakland was uh, Oakland especially East Oakland was known as a barley growing district it was it was just great for that and it all got depleted and nowadays it's all the farms are out in the central valley okay at this point in the conversation we packed up the gear left lake merritt and headed up to the oakland hills for a uh, for a little bit of a different perspective on the town Stay tuned, because the rest of my conversation with Andrew Alden is coming at you right now. We have relocated to the beautiful Oakland Hills. Andrew, can you tell us where we are right now? We are near the campus of Merritt College on top of um, a large body of ancient volcanic rocks that I've called the Leona Volcanics. Uh, geologists used to call it the Leona rhyolite because it looks sort of like a rhyolite. A rhyolite is a, a high silica lava that's usually very light colored. And this rock is also, it's almost white when it's fresh, but very quickly it gets a pinkish and reddish coating on it of iron oxide because this rock contains a small portion of pyrite, which is an iron sulfur mineral. It, it breaks down into iron oxides and sulfur oxides. And that's why there used to be sulfur mines up here. Let's, let's talk about the mines. Um, how many mines used to be in Oakland and what eventually ended up happening to those mines? There were several mines. There were at least three they had different names and they may have a different owners. They may be the same mine. I'm, so I'll just say several. And they were all after the pyrite I was, I was mentioning. Uh, parts of the Leona Volcanics are very rich. A pyrite, just real quick, is that yeah. what's commonly called fool's gold? It's commonly called pyrite, but that's its nickname is fool's gold. <laughs> it's a kind of brassy yellow very hard mineral. It's not really like gold at all. You'd have to be quite a fool to be fooled <laughs> by it. <laughs> Hence the name, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but uh, they were mining pyrite because at the turn of the last century, that was the um, standard industry technique for getting uh, 
sulfur compounds, sulfuric acid mostly, which is a basic ingredient in the chemical industry. For you need you need sulfuric acid for all sorts of processes. And this body of rock happened to have some exceptional, uh, you know, bodies of essentially pure pyrite, um, 20, 30 feet long and five feet thick. Kind of kind of rock that's pure money. And they had uh, electric rail lines run the ore down to a processing plant down at the Melrose Station, which is down in East Oakland. And that went on for a good um, 30 years, off and on. It was it was it was messy. It was dirty. It was it left behind acid runoff. You know, it was all the all the horrible things you hear about coal mining in Appalachia, and it happened here in Oakland. Fortunately, only in this one small part. And so what happened after the mines eventually shut down? The, most of them, they just abandoned them, so they were these empty shafts sitting there. Not many people lived up here, so it wasn't a problem until the development got closer and the new children got out and got into trouble. They would explore the old mine shafts. They would collect specimens and get to trouble the way we all do at that age. Is Aren't we pretty close to the area that used to be known as uh, Devil's Punch Bowl? According to the maps, we are quite close to it. But they, it, it's, this was a, it was not a sulfur mine. It was just a plain old rock quarry. But it was in the same material. It just didn't happen to have enough pyrite to be interesting. So it was, it was a plain old rock quarry, and around here that means you would uh, you'd blow it up and you'd feed it into a crusher and turn it into gravel of various sizes, whether you want it for you know railroad bed or as aggregate to mix with cement to make concrete or to you know make foundations, whatever. Crushed rock is just as valuable as, as pyrite used to be. And it's still valuable. Oakland has a couple dozen former rock quarries in it. And uh, uh, Devil's Punch Bowl was one of them, probably the biggest. But they seem to have filled it up beautifully because I've never really seen its trace. Right, because I think some of the old timers had stories about like uh, pushing abandoned cars down it just to, you know, see the spectacle of a car flying down into an old mine and things like that. That's right, blowing up fireworks, you know, shooting guns. Fun, fun. It, it's fit fun. Good old, good old fashioned fun. That's right. um, you know, it's funny because you're describing how these uh, mines and quarries used to be very productive, but also very uh, loud and noisy and, and full of pollution. There's a great uh, quote in your book where you talk about how a, I think it's like a local preacher described the sound of these daily explosions coming from the quarries as, quote, tuneful tones of human progress. Yep, that was in uh, 1895 when they were still uh, blowing up. Uh, uh, they 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 shoot up dynamite at six, noon and six. That was six days a week, and uh, that was that was business, and we worshipped business. But we still do. Uh, we really worshipped it back then. That's the way Oakland was then. So. Like you said, there's not a lot of remnants left of the old 
Oakland mines and quarries unless you know where to look. Um, and there, there is kind of one of the few prominent examples of uh, what remains of that infrastructure just a couple hundred yards below us downhill right now. Um, can you tell people what they might find if they were if they knew what to look for and they were exploring around this uh, Leona Heights area? I think you know what I'm talking about, right? I do. You're talking about this the long concrete ramp uh, that's shaped in a gentle arch and it's pointing straight toward the hills. That was uh, apparently where they had a long a uh, set of steel cables and they would fill um, carts or carts with crushed rock and send them down the lines to the uh, processing plant. And that's still there. It's on, uh, it, it's a dirt road, a fire road behind, I believe, Bermuda Street. And that's in the middle of the old mining district. You never know it was there. Uh, except when you look up at the hillside, there's a big pair of stair-step rock faces that have turned orange from iron oxide coatings since the days that was the Crusher Quarry. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is learning about locations that I've been, but I didn't know how they got that way. So an example of what I'm talking about is there's a park not too far from uh, where I live now called William Wood Park. And it's one of the kind of less well-known parks of Oakland. It's not, you know, one of the famous parks like Joaquin Miller or something like that. It's sort of just a kind of like glorified abandoned lot almost you know it's kind of like this like grassy stretch there's a couple sort of broken down benches i don't even really think the city maintains it anymore um and it's just kind of this hidden park um just a little bit uh west uh, i guess or no kind of northwest of fruitvale avenue um and so what's the story behind william wood park and can you explain why there's a lot of these kind of sort of little mini pocket parks throughout uh the kind of oakland hills and foothills that for some reason that you're about to get into haven't been developed yeah w william wood park is the site of oakland's largest landslide and this is not a big rocky landslide that you find up on the high hills this is a uh, what geologists classify as a slump. It was a, it's a big gravel hillside. It's on the edge of the Fruitvale floodplain. Now the floodplain is flat and it's got these steep sides. And um, that began sliding down toward the creek in 1909. And the city kind of dithered about it. The, the landowners who had just bought lots there, they complained about it and it settled down. And then they went ahead and built houses there. They stuck a street there. And then in the 30s, it started sliding again. And the same thing happened, a cycle of complaints and dithering and studies and it happened again during the 40s and in the 50s. And each time they'd lose a few more houses. And then finally in the 70s, the city said, okay, we'll buy all these empty lots that are undevelopable, we'll just turn it into city land, and eventually they made it this park. It's, all, it's a low maintenance park, but they're, they're doing work on it. it they're, it's not abandoned, but it is how it started, kind of, you know, ab abandoned empty lot. 
Yeah, and I should say, you know, I was kind of downplaying it a little bit earlier when I was saying it's sort of a glorified uh, abandoned lot, but it is a really nice place for people to kind of throw tennis balls at their dogs and just kind of have a nice relaxing place to chill out for a little bit. Um, I, li- I like the way you put it. It's sort of a low-maintenance park. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's an accidental park. Uh, yeah. nobody, nobody set out to make it one, but it kind of fell, and fell into the city's hands, and that's what they did with it. And there's a couple other city properties that have similar stories, maybe smaller landslides, but there'll be like a residential block in East Oakland, right, where all of a sudden in the middle of the street there'll be one lot that's undeveloped, and in some cases that's because there was landslides there, right? Yeah, the landslides are everywhere at all sizes. You know, another another park that might have arisen that way is right near where we're standing, Leona, the city's park, Leona Canyon Park which is where there were mine shafts, you know, and this was, it was downstream from where we're standing on the old Merritt College quarry. And so it was kind of damaged ground. And I, so I think there may have been, the city may have taken over that too for the same reason. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what, as long as we're talking about sort of, uh, you know, precious, minerals and metals and rocks that were collected uh, up in this part of the Oakland Hills. One thing that we haven't touched on is ochre. And uh, ochre has been in the news a bit lately because uh, the uh, um, land transfer of um, a plot in Joaquin Miller Park to uh, the Segorte Land Trust, they renamed that area Renimu Pulte Erikne, which means the place above the ochre, the place above the red ochre, and uh, this is of course a reference to the fact that Ohlone people gathered ochre in the Oakland Hills for, you know, since time immemorial. So uh, can you maybe give a little bit of a, because you talk about it in the book, about what ochre was used for and about the history of ochre. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of ochre in the Oakland Hills while we're, while we're up here enjoying this beautiful day? Well, ochre is kind of a glorified, uh, it's the ultimate version of these red and yellow iron oxides that I've been talking about here on the Leona Volcanics. When you, you have an area that's, that's essentially solid pyrite and it dissolves into iron oxides and, and washes away as sulfuric acid, the oxides stay behind and they build up. And over tens of thousands of years, you get thick deposits of this, this red mineral earth which is pure iron oxide, and that's what ochre is. It varies in color depending on the particular blend of oxides and hydroxides and manganese and so on. Um, artists know ochre as a set of traditional colors from sienna to umber. These are, these are ochre colors. And a deposit like that built up here in Leona Canyon and the um, and the Ohlone's uh, exploited it. They'd come up and mine it in their, in their way with sticks and stones and baskets and process it and trade it with their neighbors for stuff the neighbors had, whether it was nice abalone beads from the coast or sea salt from farther south around the, uh, around the Coyote Hills. Or obsidian from up north, right? Some of that volcanic they rock? Could, they could get obsidian if they wanted. They probably got finished arrowheads because that was more valuable. And, you know, it's interesting to think about how it used to be 
They would also trade for cinnabar, which is a scarlet mercury-based pigment. It's a really unusual and desirable color. They would trade for that down in the San Jose area. And so they were kind of they were kind of a commerce center in just the way that Oakland is today. The Ohlones were in their fashion back then. Yes, they spent a lot of their time burning the fields and gathering seeds and hunting small game and uh, taking sweat baths and the streams on, but they also worked. They, they, they would do this. They'd come up in season and harvest ochre and prepare it and be ready to, to go to trading meetings with this stuff. That went on for thousands of years. And then, of course, they, they got cleared off their land at gunpoint when the Spanish missionaries came in the late 1700s. And so people kind of forgot about it for the most part until a new landowner showed up named Fritz Bamer, who was a uh, founding father of the city of Alameda. He was a wealthy guy. He bought a lot of land. He was, and he looked around He was, and discovered this, this ochre deposit. And he said, I know what to do with this. I'm going to mine it, and um, I'm going to start a paint factory. I'm going to produce red paint with this gorgeous stuff. And he did that for a while until the factory burned down. And I guess he'd had enough of it. And then soon after that, he dug a little farther down and found the pyrite. And so that's where the pyrite story came from. And the ochre story is forgotten, except, except among the indigenous people. They remember, including Karina and, and the Ohlones. And it was real nice to see them acknowledge that ancient trade and in that place name. Absolutely. Well, for anyone that wants to spend some time contemplating uh, the incredible past of uh, Oakland and the East Bay Hills and California and this planet that we live on, uh, once again, I will recommend that you check out this book, Deep Oakland. Uh, Andrew Alden, it has been such a pleasure to come up here to the to this beautiful spot in the East Bay Hills and talk about rocks with you and, and learn about this, this place, which is my favorite place in the world. Thanks again for coming on East Bay yesterday, today. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks. I, I love the chance to get out on a season like this after a rainy season like this and visit these beautiful places that inspire me every day. Every day I look up at the hills, I think about visiting them and it's great to be up here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. Shout out to Heyday for publishing Andrew's wonderful book, Deep Oakland. Find it at your favorite local bookstore. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word to your friends and your family about East Bay Yesterday. Um, that's, that's the only way people really find out about the show, word of mouth. So um, please, uh, again, if you enjoyed it, let people know about it. Let them know where to find it. Um, you can find links to all my social media accounts and my free newsletter at eastbayyesterday.com. That's also where you'll find out about my upcoming events. And if you really liked the show, please uh, hit the donate link while you're at my website. It really, really helps a lot. I would not be able to keep doing the show without those of you who um, are supporting my Patreon 
and uh, I never would have made it to 100 episodes, which I did recently. Um, here's to 100 more. Thanks to all of you Patreon supporters. Music for this episode came from my friend, Justin Lee. Okay, that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more East Bay Yesterday.